Grab your Bibles today. We're going to continue on our series that we're calling Open Heart today and have been calling for some time. And if this is your first time here with us at Praise, don't worry. We might be right in the middle of a series. But even as we might be right in the middle of the series, it's not something that is really like you have to be there for all of it. Um, really, all we're doing as part of the series is we're opening up to the different books in the New Testament and we're looking at maybe the heart of those, those books. So like the key verse or two that are really just the verses that describe what that book is about and maybe they really pull in from the rest of the book or they push out to the rest of the book. So these are the verses that really kind of characterize each of those, They're the heart of each of those books. And so that's what this series is about. And today is a great day for you to be here because the one we're turning to today is not only the heart of a book, it is the heart of this whole book. And I think that's a great place for us to be. Um, I was, when I first, we moved into our new house, or it's been some time now, but Liz and I moved into the house that we purchased. We knew the people who were there before. And so they were very kind and walked us around the place and said, make sure that you're aware of this. Make sure that this filter gets turned or changed every six months, which we've totally done never. And, um, or they said to us, make sure this one drain, for whatever reason, you just got to put a little bleach around it because it just gets weird. So those kinds of things. And it was super helpful for us. Well, one of the things that they told us was that there's these two trees right in the front of the house. And, and I use the word tree generously. I think they're bushes, they're bush tree something or others. And, and they said, listen, this tree thing, you've got to cut it back every single year. And when I say cut it back, I don't mean just like prune one little bit off of each branch. I mean completely cut the branches off until you've got nothing left but the stumps. And I said, really? This isn't a practical joke, like get one on, on the pastor when, when he buys your house. But no, he said, all the way back. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to think you went too far. But you didn't. And so I did. The first year, right during that winter season, I went to those tree bush things. And I cut off every bit of green and every branch. And I cut it back to where there were just these little six little stump things that were sticking out of the ground. And I'm like, I went too far. This thing is not coming back. It's dead. And that year, like, it took off. Like, I don't know when it happened. One day I'm like, okay, there's nothing but stumps. And the next day it's like this tree again. And I was like, okay, this is serious stuff, and you just got to bring it back to that. And I'm not just that way with trees and stuff. Like, I'm a declutterer. Some people are pack rats. How many of you in here would say that you're on the edge of being a hoarder? Yeah, nobody wants to admit it. Okay, we got two or three here. Yeah, and I'd agree with that one, Greg. I'd say spot on. Totally a hoarder, no doubt about it. But if there's one side of the spectrum that is hoarders, the other side of the spectrum would be people who are like compulsive declutterers. That's me. The, one of the first things I did when I became the pastor here, some of you remember because you were there that day, we did a spring cleaning. And I just said, let's get rid of everything in this whole church that we haven't used in years. Let's clean it out. And we did. We just came through and cleaned it out. That's because I've got a problem. <laughs> I'm a declutterer. And so every year, and I'm not the only one who's this way, 
Liz also has the same thing. Like we, in our house, we every now and then we'll just say, we got to start purging stuff. We got to start, this is too much stuff. We don't need this much stuff. And so like once a year, sometimes two, three, four times a year, we'll go through a process of saying, okay, let's get rid of this stuff. And so we'll box it up and bag it up and bin it up and donate it or sell it in a rummage sale. Like we do a rummage sale almost every year or we'll donate to rummage sales here at the church or whatever. We get rid of the stuff. And every time when we're done, I go, well, I'm glad that's finished. We'll never have to do that again. <laughs> and here we are six months later and we've got the exact same problem. We just need to declutter and get rid of some of that stuff. Well, that doesn't just happen in our houses and with our trees. It also happens a lot with our hearts. And, like, things are going really well, and all of a sudden, like, maybe even how we view God, like, little things get added on. And every now and then, it is not a bad thing to come back to the heart of it and to focus on, say, this is what the heart of this thing is all about. And just kind of remove all of those things and cut it back to the heart, and that's what this series is about. And the scripture we're going to read today is that very thing. In fact, the verse that we're going to read today is a verse that changed the world. And I mean that literally. The verse that we're going to read today is a verse that a monk in a monastery read 500 years ago. And the verse just began to cut back and prune in his heart. And as a result, it changed the church. And you sit here today as a direct result of it. So if you would, we're going to turn to the heart of Romans. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be reading about the best bad news, Romans chapter 1. And while you're opening your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible with you here today, that's okay. We've got some that are spread out throughout the seats, but while you're turning there, I just want to pray that God would take this opportunity that even as we're opening up this Bible, that um, he would just open up our hearts. And that he would take the heart of this and make it the heart of this. Okay? So that's what I want to just pray with you today. If you don't have a Bible and you're not able to follow along, it will also be up on the screen. Let's pray. Father, I, I just thank you that I know some of my limitations. You know all of them. And right now there are some things that are so far beyond me, but they are nowhere close to being beyond you, oh God. And so today, what I cannot do, I pray that you would do. By your power, by your Holy Spirit, take the heart of this message and make it our heart today, I pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 1, we're going to read verse 16 and 17. This is the heart of Romans. It's at the beginning of Romans, but it's the heart of Romans. And here's what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is the heart of Romans, and it's the heart of this book right here, and this is the verse that when a guy named Martin Luther 500 years ago in 1500 A.D. opened and read this verse that it changed his life. And, and really at the time, he had allowed things to grow up in his heart. 
And the church had allowed certain things to grow in the heart of the church that should not have been there. Things that were wrong about what it means to interact with God. And so he had to come back to the core of it. And this is the core. And it begins by saying for. And Paul's writing to the Romans here. So when he says for, we got to find out what he's talking about. Because it's referring back to what just was said right before it. So let's just back up really, really quick and read the two verses right before this. Because this comes out of what he just says. Verse 14 says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Um, It says here that he's under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. The Greeks saw anybody who wasn't Greek as a barbarian. And so I think he's playing on that. He's saying, listen, I'm under obligation to everybody. And the word that's translated as obligation here is debt. I am indebted to every person to bring this message to them. I'm not a big fan of debt. When I first got out of high school, I was like every single high school student everywhere who was going into college, which means I was flooded with credit card applications. And boy, they want you to start getting on their credit card. And for a while, I had to work my way out of that. And so it's no small thing to be in debt. Because when you're in debt, that means that your decisions are not your own to be made. Well, here's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I am indebted. I owe a debt to everyone to share this message with them. And he says, and I am eager to preach the good news, the gospel, to you also who are in Rome. So he writes this letter to let them know who he is. This is like his introduction. He sends this ahead of himself because he hopes at some point to bring this message to Rome. And so he sends this letter in advance and he says, here's my goal. My goal is to bring this message to you who are in Rome. Okay, so right after he says that then, this is the setup. He says, I'm, I'm debted. I got to bring this and he says, I want to bring it to you as well. Verse 18, or 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the word ashamed there is the word embarrassed. But like times a hundred. Right? It's the word that you would use when you're ashamed of your parents. Or you're in fourth grade and something mortifying happens. And I don't even know what happens that's mortifying in fourth grade. But whatever it is that happens when you're in fourth grade that's mortifying to you. And you just feel so ashamed and embarrassed about it. And you don't want anybody to know about it. But it's too late. It's, it's shared with everybody. That kind of a thing that happens in fourth grade. One of the most common dreams anybody experiences. It's the third most common dream is that you are in public in your underwear. And I'm not going to ask you who has had that dream. I knew Greg Gojikangas would have. Um, I haven't had it in a while. But it typically what it means or what the psychologist, psychiatrist, somebody says is that when you have that dream, it means that you're feeling exposed. Okay. So when you're feeling exposed, then you have this dream like kind of subconsciously. I haven't had it in a while, but every time I do have it, I am in the fourth grade. 
I don't know why I go back to the fourth grade. It must have been a super awkward year for me. I, I don't remember what that thing was, but it's always like I'm in fourth grade, and I'm, I'm doing great in class, and all of a sudden I look down, and I'm in my underwear. But here's the thing about embarrassment. Here's the thing about being ashamed. Nobody else can make me be ashamed. Nobody else can make me be embarrassed. You cannot do something to me to make, I have to sign for it. Right? Some people dream of being in their underwear in public and it mortifies them. And some people dream of being in public in their underwear and they like want to be a model. You know what I'm saying? Like you cannot force somebody to be ashamed. You say this is, if I accept it, then I would be ashamed. So Tuesday, something happened. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hallelujah. Tuesday, I was out doing some visitations, some people in the hospital, and brought Cat Pastor Caleb along with me. We're driving back from the hospital and on I-65 or Highway 65, and I'm in the fast lane, but I'm not going very fast, okay? And I see in the middle lane a car that I knew was a police car, and specifically it was a state patrol officer. And he's in the middle lane driving in front of me. And everybody around him is going super slow. But I'm like, I'm not going too fast. So I pass him. And let me tell you the moral of this story in advance. Never, ever, ever, ever pass a state patrol officer. I don't care if they're going 10 or 15 below the speed limit. If they're going slower than the speed limit, you go slower than them. That's just... So I'm driving just a tad over the speed limit. And I pass this state patrol officer, and as I'm driving by, he goes, which I think means go faster. <laughs> so I know, I know, okay, oh boy, that was a close one. At least I'm not going to get a ticket. So I get over, I pass, I finish the pass. I don't know what I was thinking, but I finish. I think that the point was he was saying, slow down and get behind me, Okay. But I finish the past, and I get in front of him, and I'm, like, starting to slow down. And I'm, I know I'm not going too fast. And I, I lean over to Pastor Caleb, and I say, what's the speed limit here? And he goes, I'm not exactly sure. I think it's 60. But let me be clear. Every person on Highway 65 goes 72 miles per hour. It is what it is. So I'm, like, getting over, and I'm going... 65, and the lights go on. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I pull over, and up walks the officer, and then he writes me out a ticket for going five miles per hour over the speed limit on Highway 65. I'm sitting there on the road. Pastor Caleb is right next to me, and I am embarrassed. I'm ashamed. Not only because I'm like, I'm sitting here and he's watching and experiencing this all with me. I'm just like this. But I'm wondering how many people from Praise Assembly are driving by right now. Because every time I do anything wrong, I know y'all are all around me watching. And so I'm like embarrassed. I'm ashamed. It's that moment where I just feel exposed. Now I'm going to start having dreams that like I'm getting pulled over in my underwear and stuff. Like that's what's going to change for me. But I was ashamed of it. I was embarrassed. And then 
I'm sitting there, and I'm reading this, and it says very clearly, Paul says, for I am not ashamed. Like, you can sign for it or not. The decision is mine. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news. And let's be clear that he would have had a decent amount of cause to be ashamed to bring this message, that there was a Jewish carpenter, and the Romans did not think very highly of Jewish people, that a Jewish carpenter was crucified on a Roman cross. And to bring that message to the heart of the Roman Empire, Rome, the seat of Roman power, to bring that message to them and say somehow, some way, this guy on this cross provided victory over sin and death. But he says, I am not ashamed of the good news. And when he says, I'm not ashamed, he's using that thing where you say, boy, he's not bad. Right? Like, he's not bad at basketball. You don't mean that he's just, like, not barely bad. You mean he's really good at basketball. Okay, this is the lingo the kids are using these days. And um, so for, thank you, babe. (laughs) So for Paul, Paul says, I am not ashamed. And by saying that, he's saying I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum here. I'm only, I'm not just like barely not ashamed. He says, I'm like on the far end of it. I am very proud of the message that I am going to bring to you today. He says, why? Right afterwards, he says, for I am not ashamed of the good news. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. That word power is the word dunamis in Greek. It's where we get dynamic when you say somebody's dynamic, that they're powerful. It's where we get that word. It's where we get the word dynamite from, the power, right? Like th- he's saying that this thing is powerful. D.L. Moody, who was a, an evangelist in Chicago, made a, just a huge impact 100 years ago. D.L. Moody said, that the gospel is like a lion in a cage. And his whole job was just to like open up the front and just let it out. And boy, I like that. Because that means that I don't have a big job. That means my whole goal is to just open it and let the lion out. Now, for Romans, if there was something they prided themselves on, it would have been power. Right? The Greeks would have prided themselves on their philosophy. And the Jewish people would have prided themselves on their history and the revelation of God that was given to them and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of those things. That's what they would have... The Romans prided themselves on the fact that they were powerful, right? And that they could extend their power anywhere in the empire. That's why they built these massive roads So that at a moment's notice, they could send their military to anywhere in the empire. And and then when they would conquer an area, they wouldn't leave behind legions and legions of people to keep them subdued. They would leave behind like three or four hundred or a thousand. And the reason for that was you didn't have to like leave a ton of people there because you projected power to them. Right? If there's an uprising, that small amount of people weren't going to be able to hold them back. But they knew that if they rose up against the Roman Empire, then the full might of the military would come crushing down on you and decimate you. 
The Romans were proud of their power. So Paul, to the heart of this Roman empire, says, I'm not ashamed of the good news of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. That word salvation, boy, that's, that's good news and that's bad news. Right? Like, I, I do this thing with the kids, and I don't know where it started originally. I think it was any time I had to give them bad news, I decided to, like, I'm not saying this is good parenting, but, like, any time I had bad news to bring them, I would always make sure there was some kind of good news. Right? You have to have all your teeth pulled. But here's a lollipop. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's a reason, I think. Anyways, I, I, don't, I don't have time to dissect that yet. But anytime there was bad news, I'd be like, I've got good news and bad news. And then over time, like, I didn't want to just bring them bad news. And they would catch on. Okay, that means something big just happened. So I started, like, mixing it up. To the point where, like, even if I didn't have really bad news, I would still bring the good news. And then I would say, I've got good news and bad news. And the bad news would be, like, good news, too. At this point, they just call me out on it. Like, that's, that's not bad news and good news. That's good news and good news. And, and they call me out. Here's the thing about the word salvation. Is this has real good news. And inherently in the word there is real bad news. Because if you're standing at the end of a pier and you're fishing. And I come running by you and launch off the end of the pier. And jump into the water and start splashing around. You're like, what in the world are you doing? And I say, Oh, I'm saving you. You are crazy. But if you fall in and cannot swim, and I go run into the end of the pier and launch into the water and start splashing around, you know inherently what I am there to do. So when I say that, or it says that it's the power of God for salvation, that inherently means that there is a need for salvation. Um, I need to ask you guys something real fast here. And, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand here. And I know that some of you are going to be embarrassed and not want to do it. But I'm going to tell you we're all in the same place. Okay, this is a safe place. How many of you at one point in your life either purchased, had purchased for you, you purchased for yourself, you purchased for someone else, or had purchased for you a Snuggie? Come on, get those hands up. Don't be embarrassed. Get them up. Get them up. I want to see up in the balcony how many of you guys have worn, how many of you had a Snuggie before? Shame. No, I'm just kidding. Those are the dumbest things I've ever heard of. I don't watch live TV much, like at all. The other day, my sister came down, and she was like, hey, I want to watch this show. So I was like, all right, let's watch it. And so I watched it with her. And I was like, you mean they interrupt it every now and then with these things called commercials? They do that, and people watch that? Like, why don't you just stream it? Anyways. I haven't watched TV in a while, but there's one thing I do miss, and that's infomercials. Infomercials are the best. Because they always are exactly the same thing. They can't just sell you the Snuggie. They have to start with, 
why you need this Snuggie. And it's always in black and white. Have you got that? Like it's always the, the need for the Snuggies in black and white. So the Snuggie one starts like this. There's this lady sitting on a couch and boy, she just cannot get warm. So cold in that house. And they don't change the temperature. That would be a terrible solution. Instead, <laughs> she pulls out a blanket. And, boy, that almost works for a moment. But then there's one little part that's sticking out. It's her elbow. No! So she pulls the blanket over. And when she does that, it like opens up this area to like cold air come rushing in. At this point, she's just done. There's nothing that can be done to save the blanket. Thank God for a blanket with arms. You know what I'm saying? Like they show you the terrible situation. So then they sell you thigh masters and sham wows and George Foreman grills. And I don't even want to know who has a thigh master in here. But it works. Why? Because they show you in black and white, man, here's your need for this thing, and you really are in a terrible situation without it. And then they show you, we've got just the answer. And like Snuggie has sold in the millions. I mean, like it's one of the most effective infomercials of all time. Here's the thing in black and white. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says very clearly that the wrath of God is being revealed against mankind because we are fallen people. We are broken. Every single one of us is broken. None of us can do it on our own. Each and every one of us has this need. Whether we realize it or not, it is there. We can't soft sell that point because it just plain is the way it is. So when you see salvation, you know that there's a reason why salvation is necessary. But he says here, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation. Not just the power for salvation, but the power of God. That's super key. Because I think sometimes we think that like he provides the power for us to save ourselves, and that's not the case at all. Like he, we think he gives us the power and then we make it happen. That's not it. It's the power of God for salvation. And, and once we grasp that, then we understand the fact that we just can't do it on our own. There's a story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of a rich guy, a rich young man who comes to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what do I need for eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, first off, he questions, why, why are you saying good? Like, what do you mean by that? He questions his use of the word good, and then he follows it up, and he says, well, wh what, what do you see in Scripture? Like, you know that you're supposed to honor your parents and all of these things, and he says, I have done all of those things since I was a little kid. And then it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. Jesus looked at him and loved him, and then what does he say? He says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, give it away, get rid of it, and then come and follow me. And I used to read that and think that what all Jesus was saying was that we need to give everything up in order to follow him. 
And I think there's obviously a part of that in there, but there's more to it than that because Jesus actually gives us the explanation right afterwards. He says, it is impossible with man, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. So he says, and we think, because this rich young man turns around and walks away and he's defeated and he says, I can't do it. We think that there's only two possible solutions for that young man. Number one, that he turns around and walks away just like he just did. Or number two, that he does it. He just gives everything away and follows after Jesus. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's really three possibilities. I think number one, he could have just turned around and walked away. Number two, he could have tried. Or number three, he could have realized that he did not have the power himself to do it. And say, Jesus, I cannot do it. Help me. It's not about us having the power in order to accomplish it on our own. It's about us coming to him and saying, I cannot do it. And him providing the power. The power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. To everyone who believes. And this is talking about everyone. And it says, follows it up to the Jew and also to the Greek. This is talking about the whole thing. Like we're all in the same boat. We all need the exact same thing. And he comes at it and he says, to everyone who believes. So it's not like God cherry picks those that he wants to have saved. And they're the ones who get saved. This is to everyone, but everybody who comes to the point of putting their faith in him. To everyone. Everyone who believes. And I think Paul is just very clearly trying to humble us all and say that we all come at the same place to God. Verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. When I read that the first time, somewhere in between my eyes... In the back of my brain, I changed the words. Somewhere between my eyes and the back of my brain, I changed it from, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, to for in it the love of God is revealed. But that's not what it says. I think that's what we want it to say. But that's not what it actually says. It says, for in it, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed, and you step back and you go, well, wait a second. He's not talking about love here. He's talking about God's perfection and his holiness and the fact that he is perfect in all of these ways. So how is that good news? Because, boy, when I read that, that makes me scared. And actually, what's really interesting, when that monk read this for the first time, he said he hated this verse because of that right there. Because it points out the fact that God is perfect. Back to the speeding ticket. Because this sermon illustration cost me $111, and I'm going to get my use out of it. You're going to be hearing about it for the next six months. But back to the speeding ticket. Right after I got it, like, I was super bothered by it. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was that was bothering me. Because, boy, I have every reason to be thankful 
Because Friday night, I'm driving <laughs> Highway 65, and I'm like, how fast is everybody going, right? Everybody's going 72. Like, I just paced it, and I'm like, everybody around me is driving 72 miles per hour. That's just the speed that you go on Highway 65. If you get pulled over, tell them your pastor told you that you're supposed to go six, 72 on the 65. Anyways. So, like, by all accounts, I should be thankful. But after I got that ticket, like, the guy, when he walks up to the window and he gives it to me, he says, now, because you're only going five miles per hour over, this is so small that it's actually, you don't get any points on your, on your license. Instead, it's, called a, it's considered a non-moving violation. I said, that's because I was barely moving. But he didn't get, think that was funny. Anyways, um, so I should be thankful for it. But it bothered me, and it bothered me. And I'm talking to people, and people are like, oh, patting me on the back. Oh, man, I can't believe that. You should fight it in court. And and I'm like, oh, yeah, hmm, fight it in court. I'll show them and all of those things. And then I, I have one friend who's, like, got some good legalism in his blood. I won't say his name, Lauren Axmark. And he said to me, <laughs> he said, here's the thing. What's the speed limit there? I said 60. And he goes, so, like, even one mile an hour over is speeding, right? I'm supposed to fight it. That's what you're supposed to say. But I didn't still recognize what was bothering me. And then I did. I finally figured it out Thursday morning. I figured out what was just eating at my soul. Was that when I passed the police officer and pulled in front of him, and I'm driving along, and I'm like, Trying to, I don't know the speed. I lean over to Caleb. I said, what's the speed? He goes, I think it's 60. And I said, I'm not sure that's the case. And rather than just slowing down a lot, I look in the mirror and I decide to pace myself off of the police officer. Because you know he's not speeding. And so that's what I did. And so I'm watching in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, I think we're going about the same speed. He was speeding. (laughs) And Thursday morning I realized it. Here's the thing, though. It's not about comparing ourselves to others and how other people are doing. It's not about how fast everybody around me is going. When we have perfection, and that's what God asks of us. So when it says that the righteousness of God is revealed at first take, boy, that's not fun. If there's three people, say, Pastor Dylan and Pastor Caleb and I, because we're the only ones dumb enough to do it, say we decided we wanted to, as a fundraiser, jump over the Grand Canyon on a motorcycle. Okay, suspend your disbelief. (laughs) Pastor Nathan is not great at that kind of thing, and so he guns it, and he's going as fast as he can, and he makes it like 20% of the way across. Splat. And I go, hey, Deacon Board, I just cut the budget. (laughs) Next up, Pastor Dylan. Pastor Dylan guns it, and he's like, launches over the Grand Canyon. He's like, past you, Pastor Nathan. 50% of the way, splat. Cut the budget again. All right, here we go. 
So now it's my turn, and I gun it, and I know that I got to pass both of them. So I, like, get my head down and decrease the wind resistance, and I'm gunning it as fast as I can. And I, I like, even push forward, and I go up over, and I'm past the 20, and I'm past the 50, and I get to 80% across the Grand Canyon. I still splat. The only thing that counts is 100%. And everything else, splat. And so when Martin Luther first read this as a monk, he was, he hated this verse, he said. Because it reveals that God is perfect and he asks perfection of us. And he realized, I cannot do it. Until he got to the end. Because right after this it said, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When he read that and he went from that whole hating it to loving it, he said, he actually wrote it down, he said, this is what happened. At the time there was in Rome this staircase That if you really wanted to show that you love God and if you really wanted to get forgiveness, what you would do is it was a staircase that was a holy staircase because this was supposedly stone staircase that was removed from Jerusalem and brought to Rome. It was the staircase that Jesus walked up to to get to Pilate. So it was a holy staircase. So what you would have to do if you really wanted to show, and you can still to this day do, is you can go to Rome and you can... Climb up this staircase on your knees. And the entire way up as you're climbing on your knees, you just pray a prayer over and over and over and over again. And it shows the fact that, boy, you really want it. And by really wanting it, then you can earn forgiveness. So he was climbing the staircase on his knees, praying over and over and over again. And he gets to the top, and these words came back to him. The righteous shall live by faith. And everything he had built up and everything that was going on in his heart just came crumbling down. Because what that means is that this perfection, which is so far out of our reach, is made ours. Right? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is through faith that we receive it. And nothing else can get us there. It is only by faith. And I think it is so important for us to hear this over and over again, to come back to the core of it. Because quite honestly, there was another guy, Donald Barnhouse was his name, and again, about 100 years ago or so, somewhere in there. He said, here's our problem. He says, some of us think that, boy, we can make it 20% of the way. Some of us think we can make it 50% of the way. Some of us, if we're really, really good, like we have no fun whatsoever, we can make it to 80%. He said, and we think then that what we need to do is we come to God and we say, God, I can only make it 20% of the way and I need you to bring in that extra 80%. Or we think, oh God, I I really have worked hard and I've made it 50. I need you to go in 50-50 with me. And you provide 50%, and I'll do the other 50%. 
And then that person who's like super straight-laced and really pushes it goes, man, I can make it 80%. I'm not going to trouble you for more than 20. The problem is that until we learn to curse our 20%, and until we learn to curse our 50%, and until we learn to curse our 80% and realize we can't do a bit of it, then God's not able to save us. That we have to come back to the fact that we can do nothing on our own and come to him like that and then he brings it all. So we need to step back. And we need to read it and hear it say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we don't hide or minimize our failures. But we come with every single one of them to him. And we lay it all down and we say, God, I can't do it on my own. I don't need a thigh master, I need Jesus. I realize that my little bit that I can do won't get me there. And me trying to do it on my own will end up with splat. So I just come to you, and I need your help. And a lot of us are like, boy, that's a great message. That's really fantastic. I hope there's someone here who needs to hear that today. And yet when you read verse 15... Who is Paul talking to? Verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you. This is for the church. This is for those who've heard it all their lives. This is for those of us who, man, we've been trying. And we've been doing our own little part and we're thinking that somehow that's working our way to God. And here Paul says, listen, the message for you that I have to bring to you is the fact that you need Jesus and Jesus alone. Come back to it. Hear the fact that, boy, you got to unclutter and get rid of some of the stuff that you layer on top of it and just come to him. Because unless you're perfect, and not one of us is, when it comes down to it, it's not enough. See, what would have been great for me is as I was sitting on the side of the road, if the police officer would have come up and said, hey, here's your $111 ticket, and then pull out $111 and pay me. That did not happen. But that's exactly what God does. He says, here's the perfection that I ask. And I know you can't do it. So put your faith in Jesus Christ. Come to him like the rich young man and say, oh God, I cannot do it. It's impossible for me to do. And then by faith, allow Jesus Christ and his perfection to become yours. That's the message of Romans, that's the message of the Bible, and that's the message we need to come back to time and time and time again. So whether you've heard it a million times or this is your first time, 
That's the message you got to take from here and put here. And you got to cling to it and hold to it and not try to add to it. That's the message. Father, I thank you.